is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. Welcome to the March edition of Book Choice here on Fine Music Radio. We have a massive show lined up for you today, so pull up a seat or pull up your steering wheel and join us for a full hour of great recommendations for your next must-have fiction or non-fiction reads. We have two guest reviewers this month, with Helen Moffat telling us about some very exciting new local fiction and Noreen Dorman who's joining us to fill John Hanks's hiking boots this month in our nature segment. Our regular reviewers are also with us this month for a fantastic interview with a local author who turned international. And we also have a full segment on the latest biography of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who's the French aristocrat who wrote The Little Prince. I recently learned that book is impressively one of the best-selling novels of all time. And later on in the show, we have a fascinating conversation between two authors of a recently launched book that might just help shed some light for us on the marvel and the mystery that is Bitcoin. My name is Paige Nick. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. So please do stick around. There's plenty of good booky stuff coming, not to mention some great music as always. I always love starting the show with Vanessa Levenstein. Vanessa and I have very similar reading tastes, so I tend to make a note of what she's enjoyed and then I try to get my hands on that too. So Vanessa, what have you got for us today and what am I going to be reading next? If at the end of 2019 you handed me a book about a terrible pandemic where people slipped into comas and died, where the world felt like it had stopped turning, I'd have said this is melodramatic, B-grade, Hollywood made-for-video material. Jodie Pico's latest book, Wish You Were Here, is set in New York at the time of the COVID outbreak. Sadly, this part of the novel is not fiction. As we all know, COVID has been as real as the face masks we snap on before going out. The author is asthmatic and lockdown was a particularly lonely and frightening experience for her. She's definitely captured these feelings of isolation and despair in this book. The protagonist is Diana, your archetypal ambitious young woman. She works at Sotheby's, has an interesting relationship with a potential seller, based on Yoko Ono, and has waiting in the wings, ready to pop the question, a lovely boyfriend, a young doctor called Finn. There's this contrived setup you often find in fiction, where a tick box of perfect plans is presented. Perfect job, apartment, boyfriend, and this acts as a spoiler, because you know it's a matter of time before the deck of cards come tumbling down. Back to the plot. Diana and Finn had planned, you see that word planned is popping up again, a trip to the Galapagos Islands when COVID strikes. Finn has to work long shifts at the hospital, so Diana goes alone, hence the title of the book, Wish You Were Here. After some initial challenges, Diana chills out and enjoys the idyllic island, a world away from the horrors of the pandemic, and just as you're feeling comfortable. The writer shocks you with a slap, a reveal of the devastating effects of COVID. If you enjoy Picot, you'll enjoy Wish You Were Here. 
Now we leave the Big Apple and journey to Alexandra Township in Johannesburg for Fred Kamalo's Two Tons of Fun. This is surely going to be a strong contender this year in the Good Book Appreciation Society's Book Cover Awards. An Afrocomb, bucket of fried chicken, ghetto blaster and tin shack combine into an eye-catching cover of sheer force and fun. I recently heard a conversation with an author who said, we read so we can inhabit and understand other people's worlds, and this is so true about two tons of fun. It felt like the reader was invited into Alex, a rat-infested place of danger, warmth, fun, where people are volatile, vibey, loving, and above all, resilience. The book is narrated by an older protagonist, reflecting on her teenage years. Lorata lives with her mother, her siblings, and her mother's ever-changing boyfriends in Alex. Her life takes a dramatic turn when she meets Janine, whose mother, Auntie Gugu, is a professor. Because of their affluent lifestyle, they are referred to as those white people. Both girls, though, need each other. Janine is isolated from her community, and Lorata offers her street cred and belonging. In return, Lorata and her family benefit from the comfort of Janine and Auntie Gugu's home. And more than that, the realization that there can be another reality, an alternate future teenagers need to fit in and at the same time carve their own identity and there's nothing better than having a best friend to share this journey one that reflects and affirms you Lorata and Janine are delightful teens they form a dance duo called two tons of fun and bond over books and boys there's a quick paced life in Alex where death and violence are as ubiquitous as pup and cabbage dancing and Uncle Maroki's harmonica Kamala paints a world that is not all black and white. Leaving Alex to attend a private school, in fact leaving South Africa, comes with its own problems. Lorata reflects, Alexandra Township was crazy, but so was the rest of South Africa. At least Alexandra was honest about being crazy. There are so many wonderful characters and rich storylines. However, I did have somewhere issues, where the teenagers and most of the adults felt real, Auntie Gugu's dialogue just doesn't always ring true. And then the ending. Aren't endings so often the quibble of a reviewer? The way the author ties it up too neatly, when it's not necessary. However, that aside, Two Tons of Fun was both hilarious, heartbreaking and illuminating. It would make an excellent school set work. Oh, I'm excited. I've got the Fred Kamalo book on my bedside table as we speak. I'm going to bump it up the pile. I love Fred Kamalo's book called Dancing the Death Drill. If you haven't heard of it, it's fiction, but based on a true story of Pitso Motang, who was a young South African who volunteered to serve with the Allies during the First World War. But then he found himself on board the SS Mendy, which was a ship that sank off the Isle of Wight in 1917, when more than 600 mostly black South African soldiers lost their lives in a catastrophe that official history largely forgot. This was a story from our history that I'm ashamed to say I'd never even heard of until I picked up Fred Kamalu's book. It's a fantastic novel. It was published by Penguin Random House in 2017, and I can highly recommend it whether you're a history buff or not. It makes for brilliant reading, and I love finding out about history that I never knew about before. How do we all not know about this story? It's really fascinating. <laughs>
That was You Made Me Love You by the Johnny Cooper Orchestra, here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And now for something completely different. Helen Moffat joins us as a guest reviewer. She's joined us on the show before. Helen is a world-class editor. She's the author of Too Many Books to Count, and they range from everything from historical fiction. She's written cricket books. She's written green books and books on the water crisis. And she's even written Choose Your Own Adventure Erotica. So she really writes quite broadly. And she's pretty much one of our most famous book editors in South Africa. Helen's latest release that she wrote herself is called Charlotte. It's a book that picks up where Jane Austen left off. And if you think she writes and edits widely, you should see how she reads. Today, Helen brings us news of two recently published local novels that I'm really looking forward to. Love You Madly is an Austen reinvention by Daisy Jones and Lucinda Hooley. And Onke Mazibuko's debut novel, The Second Verse, is the second book she covers. Welcome to the show again, Helen. It's so lovely that you're joining us. I'm a huge Jane Austen fan and actively seek out contemporary interpretations of her novels. So when I heard that lifelong friends Daisy Jones and Lucinda Hooley had written a version of Sense and Sensibility set in the late 1990s in Cape Town, Joburg and London's edgier suburbs, I was intrigued. Love You Madly tells the story, largely through letters, of sisters Mare and Mealy and their romantic and family dramas against backdrops many of us of a certain vintage will identify with. I was swept up by the modern refiguring of Austen's novel, wondering how the authors would interpret hallmark scenes and characters from the original. I hasten to add that you do not have to have read Sense and Sensibility to enjoy this funny and quirky novel. I love the Goodreads review that summed it up as odd, but very, very good. It's a great snapshot of those years of our 20-something lives when nothing seems to matter as much as affairs of the heart. Yet the story also highlights the tangled and vital dynamics of families and friends, the latter being the family we choose. It's published by their freelance editing and creative imprint, The Language Laundry, so you'll have to order this online or get it from indie bookstores such as Cork Bay Books, The Book Lounge in Cape Town, Love Books in Josie, and The Bibliophile in Clarence, most of which offer delivery. Get it as a rewarding read, but if you like Sense and Sensibility, then this is an absolute must. The author's interpretations of heroes and villains like Colonel Brandon, Edward Ferrers, Willoughby, and the deliciously horrid Lucy Steele are huge fun. And some of the more dramatic scenes in the original are reinvented with great panache in the local context. There's even a hijacking. Knowing how things ended didn't remove any of the dramatic tension for me, and I actually lay awake one night, wondering how men really were going to resolve what one Austin critic called the exquisite agony of having to witness in silence the object of one's affection courting another woman. Then, to move on to brief mentions of books to watch out for, as an editor, I get to read some wonderful books ahead of publication. So I'm able to announce two big treats coming for listeners, especially those with a fascination for high-quality local content. Sapiwa Mahala's legacy project, his biography of the iconic writer and drum journalist Tan Timber, The Making and Breaking of the Intellectual Tsotsi, will be coming from Wits University Press at the end of this month and is required reading for anyone with an interest in the history of South African journalism and writing. It's the first full portrait we get of a man who made a profound impact 
not just as a scribe of the drum and Sophia town years, but as a poet, mentor, teacher, Africanist, and critic. Although the book is intellectually rigorous and comes highly recommended by writers and academics of the stature of Zakes Medar and David Atwell, it's an entertaining and at times rollicking and racy read. The personal interviews the author did with many of Timber's contemporaries, some of whom have since passed on, are particularly valuable and precious. Finally, something special is coming soon from Penguin Random House, psychologist Okan Mazabuko's debut novel, The Second Verse, also looks back at the late 1990s from the perspective of a teenager grappling with a dysfunctional family, bullying at school, romantic conundrums, and what it means to become a man. This may sound heavy, but the book is funny and warm, and tricky topics are lightly handled. It's ultimately about the love the young protagonist has for his friends, his siblings, his art, his neighbors, his peers on his circumcision journey, and it manages to be both entertaining and inspiring. Thank you so much, Helen. My to-read pile just gets higher and higher. I'm going to have to take a few months off my day job to get reading if I'm going to ever catch up. And our next guest reviewer is Noreen Dorman. We want to say a very big hello to Noreen, who's filling in for John Hanks this month in our nature book slot. Like Helen, Noreen is also an author and an editor. But Noreen is an author and an editor of many science fiction and fantasy titles. One of her latest is called Sing Down the Stars, and that was published by NB Books. It won a gold in the Sunlum Prize for Youth Literature, and it also won the Percy Fitzpatrick Award for Children and Youth Literature. So Noreen, what Strake Nature title do you have for us today? I've been given the opportunity to have a sneak peek into Stewart's Field Guide to National Parks and Game Reserves of Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Malawi. This handy guide was written by Chris and Matilda Stewart, who clearly have a great passion for our continent's wild places. The guide is brimful of detailed maps and content that show how many wonderful parks and conservation areas these countries have and will prove useful to anyone planning a trip. Many diverse, contrasting environments are to be found here, from coastlines to desert and river deltas to savanna grasslands. Great pictures, too, to give a teaser of what sorts of wildlife and vegetation you can expect. Many well-known areas, such as Etosha, Cherby, Manor Pools, Victoria Falls, and more are featured. This guide highlights the fact that conservation walks a tightrope between land usage. We must consider that people have been using natural resources for thousands of years and also touches on how we need to mitigate the damage we cause now, with poaching being a very serious issue, as well as illegal timber harvesting, overgrazing and encroachment of human habitation. All these can have devastating long-term effects on the environment. It's tricky to balance consumption with conservation, and these are challenges of land usage that will always need to be addressed. The book is divided into two sections, one part dealing with the natural history and the second providing an image gallery of some of the commonly occurring wildlife and vegetation, which is great for a quick identification. This latter part is divided into mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and trees. Handy sidebars in the first part of the guide offer tips and further commentary and also warn if the reserve you wish to visit falls within a malaria or tsetse fly area or whether rabies might even be an issue. Warnings are also for the lack of cell phone reception in remote areas, connectivity often being something we city dwellers take for granted. The wilds of Africa offer a harsh, unforgiving landscape, 
yet one also filled with incredible, awe-inspiring beauty. Here be lions, quite literally. So if you wish to explore truly wild areas, it's best to be prepared and be aware of what's going on around you at all times. I found the natural history information particularly fascinating and feel it will most certainly inform travelers, especially when it comes to selecting routes and deciding on which accommodation options will be suitable, whether you wish to tough it out or rather stay in a luxury tented camp. The authors also give an indication of some of the plants and wildlife you'll most commonly see in particular areas. Equally important is information and advice about the road conditions, but also to take note when the dry or rainy seasons are, as these may also affect your mobility in whichever destination you visit. What I love the best about this book is that it gives an introduction to parts of southern Africa that I don't know well, and I most certainly wish to visit before I shuffle off this mortal coil. With such a wealth of natural beauty, it's very tempting to forego overseas travel entirely and stay local. There's far too much to see and do in a single lifetime. We were just listening to a song called Promenade 
It's a song that's also known as Walking the Dog. It's by George Gershwin, played on the piano by Thomas Reichner, right here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, which is sponsored every month by Exclusive Books. And I'm your book host, Paige Nick. I've really been looking forward to this next segment. Beverly Roosmuller read the latest biography of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the French aristocrat who wrote The Little Prince. It's an all-time childhood and adult favorite of mine, and I don't think I'm the only one because I think it sold something like over 200 million copies around the world. Beverly's review is both fascinating and moving. It's wonderful to hear more about the life of this author and how it influenced the book he wrote. And the timing of this book and this review is also incredibly poignant, considering the devastating current affairs that are on all our minds right now. Once upon a time, there was a story of a princely little boy with golden curls who loves and is hurt by love and travels our planet looking for answers. Who is this boy? Not only the little prince, the iconic child in the novella. It also describes the author, French-born Count Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who grew up in a castle with many doors and little money and became a legendary aviator in an era when flying was an adventure. Big, burly, larger than life and seemingly without fear, his friends called him Saint-Ex, so that is what I shall do. The Prince of the Skies is a gripping and beguiling historical novel on Saint-Ex's life, but he would have been extraordinary even without the great fame of The Little Prince, one of the best-selling books of all time, over 200 million copies in more than 300 languages. St. X was born right at the beginning of the 20th century. His passion was flying in a time when the skies were still new and waiting to be conquered. Flying intoxicated him and his aviator friends. They flew for the love and allure of it, opening up vast distances between Europe and Africa and great routes along South America in fragile planes that were unpredictable, unsafe and cold. They flew in drenching rain, temperatures that froze them, ducking through peaks from the Alps to the Andes as they skimmed the stars and gazed at the continents of Africa and Europe almost kissing each other the seas and deserts, and sights that no one before them had ever seen. Why did they choose this dangerous life? They didn't make much money. In a way, it was their addiction. But there was a practical reason too, to create the world's first aviation postal service, to carry precious letters through the skies as quickly as possible, those sacred texts that join loved ones who are far apart. In today's world of emails and phone texts, the thought of being literally lost for words, for months if not years, is unimaginable. Yet this is what St. X and his colleagues understood as they flew their dangerous routes. It was a much-needed act of service and sacrifice that meant the very world to those who were waiting. They all crashed and often died on freezing mountains and in seas and on blazing deserts. This happened to St. X more than once. His eight almost fatal days in the Sahara with not enough water brought on hallucinations, which was the beginning of imagining those scenes in The Little Prince. Women, wine and friends, a high life, if you'll excuse the pun, was part of his very being, yet there was a philosophical streak to him and a political one too. He loathed Nazism and was horrified at Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler. In a comment that could have been written now, 
as the world worries about the Ukraine. He explained that if you throw a lamb chop to a hungry wolf, you don't satisfy it, you are showing it the way to the pantry. He loved many women, yet his own marriage was difficult. His beautiful and fickle wife Consuela was as unfaithful as he was, and he felt taken for granted. Many believe that the lovely but prickly and demanding Rose, tended so carefully by the little prince on his tiny planet, may have been based on her. But it was the child who realized that he had neglected to cherish her love for him and that his service and sacrifice for her was his life's task. Embedded in the little prince's message at the heart of the novella and St. X's life is this. One sees clearly only with the heart what is essential is invisible to the eye. He rewrote that sentence more than 15 times to get it right, something he often did, tearing up as he rewrote through nights. He was a gifted illustrator as well. All the colour illustrations of The Little Prince were created by him and are still used today in the reprints. He wrote many books on his life and on flying and was quite famous with many international honours long before The Little Prince. When asked why he did not stop flying to make even more of a success as an author, he felt people did not understand him. My books are a consequence of my flying, he said. One could not exist without the other. Those of you familiar with the heart-wrenching last pages of The Little Prince know how brave the boy's decision was to return to his tiny planet with the agency of the poisonous yellow snake to care for his vulnerable rose. He asks the narrator not to be sad. When you see my body, it is not me. It is too heavy for me to take. It is just an old abandoned shell. But remember, when you look at the stars, I shall be there laughing. You will hear 500 million little bells. St. X went missing while flying a war mission near the end of World War II in July 1944. He died aged 44 as he had lived, steering his way through the skies with purpose, in service and sacrifice. Allow me to imagine that as he shed his mortal shell and joined his little prince laughing in the stars, he heard those millions of little bells. What he left behind as an aviator and author is priceless. This is a very special book, a powerful reminder that in a world dazzled by power and shiny things and nastiness, a well-lived life can rise above such pointless nonsense. The Prince of the Skies is by Spanish writer Antonio Iturbe, also author of The Librarian of Auschwitz.
Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio. That was Forgotten Dreams, composed by Leroy Anderson with Mike Lartz on saxophone and Eddie Kirkwood on keyboards. And I'm your host, Paige Nick, here with exclusive books to talk about books and books and books and books. Beryl Eichenberger jumped on a call last week with Barbara Much about her new book called The Fire Portrait. Barbara was born and raised in South Africa, and now she spends her time between Cape Town and London. Welcome to the show, Beryl and Barbara. There's a passion and longing that is palpable as you read The Fire Portrait by Barbara Much. A passion for South Africa, the country of her birth. A longing for tolerance and understanding. Themes explored in depth in this fascinating portrait of a young Englishwoman, Frances Whittington. Transplanted from the devastation of the Depression, which had decimated her wealthy family, and the relative peace of post-World War I, England, to Cape Town, her ambition to become an artist is her focus. When she arrives to live in a Karoo hamlet, Allo Glen, where the residents have long memories for the Boer War, she's faced with the distrust for the Engels. That she is an artist adds fuel to the flames that still dwell in the belly of the Boer. And therein lies the story. In this colourful canvas of the South Africa of the 1930s to the 1950s, we traverse the Karoo with all its mystical offerings and meet a host of fascinating characters. This absorbing story creates an intimacy between reader and protagonist, so I'm delighted to welcome Barbara Much to Book Choice today. Hi, Barbara, and thank you very much for joining us this morning. Yes, good morning, Beryl. It's lovely to be with you. So the first thing that I wanted to ask you was what prompted you to start writing, because it was actually only after you'd left South Africa that you started writing. That's correct. It it was only when my family and I were transferred to the UK that I began to write not about our new life there, but about the life that I'd left behind here in South Africa. And being abroad gave me a vantage point, I think, from which to look back and a fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to write stories about South Africa that shone a light on the country and that showed both its brilliance and its shadows. Well, your descriptions and your observations are extraordinary. And I was literally taken into the crew. uh, (laughs) And the contrasts between Cape Town and the Karoo were fascinating. But the fire portrait looks very much at migration. Why did you choose that subject? Well, it it features heavily in my own family Mm -hmm. background because my grandparents migrated from Ireland to South Africa over a century ago, and they settled in Craddock in the Karoo. Mm -hmm. And I remember my grandmother talking to me about how daunting it was for her when she first arrived. She was a music teacher, and uh, she didn't speak the local language and she found the Karoo extremely severe in terms of landscape. And that is what Frances faces when she goes to the fictional town of Aloe Glen. And initially, as a young artist, uh, she sees nothing that she thinks she can paint. It just looks uh, too harsh. And then she begins to look more closely, and she sees aloes, and she sees cryptic stone plants, Mm -hmm. and she realizes that this is going to require a lot more effort, and she needs to look really carefully, and then she will be able to find subjects to paint. 
I think this was one of those things that struck me. She comes to Cape Town because her family lose their money and they think that she has a better chance in Cape Town. Yes. Um, she joins the society at that stage. She's a bit of a flapper, which is remarked on, which I loved. <laughs> but when And the marriage of convenience that she finally has to make takes her to this small hamlet. What I was so struck with was the detail that you had gone into through the nature of the Karoo and obviously the nature of Cape Town, but those contrasts were quite extraordinary. Yes. There's such wonderful imagery. You obviously love nature. Yes, I do. What's, I, I was what's lucky the background enough, there? Lucky enough, Beryl, to live near Kirstenbosch for a couple of years. And so I had a, a ringside seat on the glories of Feinbosch. Mm. So I thought that when I took my heroine, Frances, to the Karoo, it would be a real challenge for her, having been painting, you know, the wonderful proteas and things like mm -hmm. that and the marvellous landscape, to suddenly be in a situation where she had to look extremely hard to find what it was that she could paint. At the time she arrives there in the 1930s, there's a, there's a severe drought. So things are even more difficult for her, and she just has to work extremely hard to find subjects to paint and to create something which is evocative. Which she does magnificently, although the residents of the hamlet are not too happy about all of that at all. But she is a very strong character. And just to sort of close off, because as always, we're running out of time, who inspired Frances? Oh, I think she's an amalgamation of a number of people that I've met during my life here in South Africa. I don't think she's a particular individual. Mm -hmm. I think she's <laughs> an accumulation, if I could put it that way. But you're right. She's a feisty character for that period of time. Totally. She's determined to make her way as an artist. Totally out of time, which makes her enormously lovable. I was rooting for her completely all yes, the time. Yes, she, and she's, she won't give up. She, no. She's determined to find her way in this rather daunting surrounding. Absolutely. Barbara, thank you so much. The Fire Portrait by Barbara Much is published by Alison and Busby, and you can go to www.barbaramuch.com for more information.
You don't have to be a music buff to recognize that track, I don't think. That was And I Love Her, composed by the iconic John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and it was played on the clarinet by Dan Hill. Our last slot for the show is something I think we're all keen to understand a bit better. Bitcoin. South African authors Stephen Sidley and Simon Dingle have recently brought out a book called Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. So we're going to do things a little bit differently this month. We've invited these two authors to have a conversation with each other and tell us a bit more about Bitcoin and about this new book. Partly because we thought it might be an interesting way of doing things, but it's also because how do you find somebody to interview these guys who knows more about Bitcoin than they do? So we may as well leave it to the pros. Thanks for joining us to interview yourselves, guys. My name is uh, Stephen Boyke Sidley, and I'm with Simon Dingle, and we are the co-authors of Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. And before we launch into a quick sort of review of what the book is about, I just wanted to shout out to, to Paige Nick and her book choice team at FMR, and also to mention her Facebook site, Good Book Appreciation Society. She's been a champion for readers and writers for decades in this country. Okay, so the way we're going to play this, while we're both co-writers of the book, I'm sort of going to play host, and Simon is going to play the interviewee, and we've got about eight minutes, so I'm going to launch straight into it. Simon, let's start with what is DeFi? The book is called, again, Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance, and the End of Banks. So let's start off, what is decentralized finance? Well, it really describes a, a whole swath of things that existed in the traditional financial world. And decentralized finance is just taking all of those things and putting them into decentralized ledger technologies, predominantly on the Ethereum blockchain, but using blockchain technologies in general. So taking things like lending and borrowing, insurance and other things that financial uh, institutions used to undertake and doing it without them, basically. Just to add to that, when, when blockchain was basically invented, and that was in 2009 with Bitcoin, which everybody knows, it enabled a whole bunch of things to be done on the blockchain. And in 2017, via a new and different blockchain called Ethereum, a whole bunch of developers saw that financial institutions had been providing services to us for a thousand years, could have targets on their backs and started reimagining the way that borrowing and lending and stock exchanges and insurance and derivatives could be deployed on the blockchain. Why is this important? Because it turns out to be faster, cheaper, fairer, and more trustworthy, which leads uh, Simon into my second question to you is, who is the audience for this book? I think anybody who has an interest in where this technology is taking us and what the future of money and finance looks like, which I think to many might sound quite boring, but once you start to interrogate it, this is actually a fascinating topic that, that really affects us all. If you've got a bank account, which I'm presuming anybody listening to this probably does if they're older than 18, then this should be of interest to you and perhaps even more so if you don't have a bank account. Yeah, one of the things that we don't realize is that the, the great financial institutions who own these huge buildings downtown, who we do business with, it's an asymmetric relationship. They have the power we don't. We don't understand the transaction fees. We don't understand the loan interest rates that we charge or the deposit rates that we get. And sometimes we get spotty service. And worst of all, if we don't like the service, it's very difficult to move to another bank. All of the stuff gets entirely disassembled under DeFi. 
DeFi really exploded on the world in about 2021, even though it had been going for a couple of years before that. And now there are, at the beginning of 2021, all of the great banks of the world try to dismiss this as kryptonite or poison. And now at the beginning of 2022, all of the big banks of the world and insurance companies and exchanges are now looking to try and incorporate these technologies into what they do. So let me ask the next question, Simon, is who are the winners and the losers in this DeFi game as it moves from sort of a screaming toddler into a more mature set of fairer and cheaper and more trustworthy services? Well, broadly speaking, humanity is the winner. And, uh, you know, your interpretation of that depends on your perspective, because to follow on from what you were just saying, the financial institutions themselves uh, stand to gain quite a lot from this movement you know, if inefficiency, if nothing else, because innovation is always about efficiency. Innovation is always about traditionally removing steps from a process and, and fundamentally doing things better than they were done before. I also can't help but think back to the early days of the open source and Linux movement, which I was quite involved in during my varsity years and, and in the first few years of my career, you know, working with uh, the Shuttleworth Foundation and, and others that were active in the space. And as you'll remember very well back then, Stephen, the the uh, the big tech companies, the giants like Microsoft and Oracle, were were waging war with open source and Linux. Microsoft, in fact, had a campaign called "Get the Facts" and spent millions of dollars putting out advertorial, you know, printing billboards, etc., trying to get the message out there that using Linux and open source software was a terrible idea. It's going to cost you too much to maintain. All sorts of nonsense. Skip forward two decades, and now Microsoft is arguably the biggest proponent of open source software in the world itself. And in fact, if you download the new Windows 11 operating system from Microsoft, it's got the Windows subsystem for Linux built in. So it went from something that they were combating to now an intrinsic part of their own stack. And I see the same thing happening with DeFi. You know, to varying degrees, we're seeing financial institutions combating this movement, trying to fight it, spreading misinformation about it, nonsense about Bitcoin wasting electricity. But I think if you skip forward two decades, as with open source, there'll be two kinds of banks left in the world. Those that embraced it and made it part of what they do and the others that aren't around anymore. I just wanted to return to the question of who the book is written for. Most people who do a little bit of reading, even if it's only glancing at a headline, are aware of Bitcoin. Far fewer people are aware of DeFi. And what we've tried to do Mm. is pitch this book at the intellectually curious reader who may have heard of the stuff or barely heard of the stuff and want to look under the hood more deeply. So we've taken a broad swath of how the industry sits, what the framework is, and how all of these projects across banking and, and derivatives and exchanges and insurance, how they work under the hood. I want to kind of wrap it up here because I think we're getting towards the the end of this little segment just to talk about people who want to know what are the risks in using DeFi, particularly for the people who are maybe interested in putting their money into some of these projects, which return startling annual percentage yields. I put some money on just recently, which is I'm getting 13%. It's a zero risk investment. It's not exposed to the volatility of Bitcoin or anything else. So I want to ask you, Simon, as a final question, what are the risks inherent in the technology? The risks are making mistakes and and being fooled by scammers and and other criminals, which is the story of technology back to the dawn of humanity. You know, if you look at internet banking, that's something that's been with us for decades now, but people still get tricked into giving criminals their usernames and passwords, etc. You know, there there are many people who still don't understand the security risks of using online financial services. And so... If you look at DeFi and blockchain more broadly, 
there's a technology that's very robust. And if you know what you're doing is, is foolproof in its safety. But misunderstanding is a danger. And so I think a lot of people who are wading into these waters, especially if they've, they've got a substantial uh, amount of money stored in these DeFi protocols, would do best to learn more about the technology, how to secure their keys, and make sure that they don't fall prey to the army of swindlers online looking for their private keys and trying to trick them in Telegram chats and elsewhere. Right. So I just wanted to say the name of the book again for the listeners, Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance, and the End of Banks by Stephen Boyke Sidley and Simon Dingle launching this week. There is a launch in Johannesburg to, on Thursday night at Exclusive Books in Rosebank at uh, 6 p.m. to which you're invited and Cape Town on March the 3rd at Waterfront Exclusive Books. Thank you for joining me, Simon. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, I feel like I understand that better. And that was just eight minutes. Imagine if I read the whole book, uh, then I could probably make some money. That wraps up our show for March. My eternal thanks and gratitude as always to Mawandi for making the show and to our two guest reviewers, Helen Moffat and Noreen Dorman. I also want to thank the authors who joined us today and of course our regular reviewers who keep us in the loop with all these great must-reads. If you missed any of the reviews or titles in the show, a podcast of today's show will be loaded onto fmr.co.za really soon. I also want to thank Exclusive Books for sponsoring us. We couldn't think of better partners for this show. We'll be playing out with I'm Always Chasing Rainbows by pianist Ken Higgins. I'm your book choice host, Paige Nick, and I'm always chasing the next great read. So I'll see you again for book choice next month.
Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. FM.